city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Today, we have another original Timber, someone who scored some notable goals in England and here for Portland. And he also built the game at the youth level at a very critical time in our area's soccer history. I'm excited to welcome the player who scored the most iconic 1975 Timbers goal, Tony Betts. Tony, how are you? Doing well, thank you, Billy. I'm uh, enjoying my retirement down here in California. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, but you do get up here a bit, up to Portland. Yes. Once in a while. I come back and forward to Portland. In fact, we used to live there until about a year or so ago. Um, and I really classify Portland as my home now, um, despite obviously my real homes in England. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about that. I'm going to give a, a formal introduction, and then we'll get to some questions. So hold on. This is a this is a big one because you've done a lot. Tony was born in Derby, England, in 1953, and played his youth and early professional football at Aston Villa. Tony played for both England amateurs and England youth national teams. In 1972, he led Aston Villa to the FA Youth Cup, eventually beating Liverpool in the final. After a short loan to Southport, Tony came, as many villains did, to play for former Aston Villa gaffer Vic Crow in that first Timbers 1975 season. Tony's first Timbers goal came in the first Cascadia matchup, a 2-0 win at Vancouver. Among his seven goals that season, the one most remembered is the sudden-death overtime game winner in the first round of the playoffs at home against Seattle. Tony and the 75 Timbers went on to reach the first NASL Soccer Bowl. His last season here was 1977, a season that saw him become the first Timber to score a 35-yard shootout goal away to L.A. on April 24th. A one-match appearance in 1979 for the Minnesota Kicks against the Portland Timbers, where he registered an assist in his first match in nearly two years, led to a three-season indoor career with major indoor soccer league's Buffalo Stallions. After his playing career ended in 1982, Tony set up shop for good, uh, excuse me, for good in Portland, beginning a successful career in the soccer apparel industry. Tony's professional career off the field was thriving when he was approached to start a youth soccer club. From that discussion, Tony started West Villa Soccer Club, one of Oregon's most successful clubs in the early 1990s. In addition to to this, Tony coached at what was then Wilson High School in Portland. His 1975 playoff goal is the first truly great highlight in Timbers history, and its impact on young people from the Portland area is a lasting and continuing legacy. He's working on a memoir, memoir of his time in the game. I will stop talking soon, but I'm very happy to welcome to the Green is a Color podcast, Tony Betts. Good morning. Morning. That was a mouthful, but that's... <laughs> And the thing is, it doesn't even cover everything. Uh, you know. Oh, it's in, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'll start with the questions. Uh, you started your professional youth career with Aston Villa at about 16. Um, and that's an interesting story. I remember you corrected me on that um, because you were too old for an apprenticeship contract. 
but they signed you as an amateur to keep you from other keep other teams from signing you. So what was playing like for you growing up, and how did you uh, eventually end up with Aston Villa? Um, I would always say the certain things in life, and uh, one of them is being there at the right time, at the right place. And uh, it happened to me. Uh, obviously, when I was younger, we were writing letters to the local teams like Notts Forest and Derby County and uh, Notts County for tryouts and went on some and never got selected. So I ended up playing with a, a men's team, a good men's team, where I was uh, where I was living. And one day, I scored a hat trick on the local park. And believe it or not, in those days, there were a lot of scouts that would go around and and uh, look for look for kids. And on that day, I scored a hat trick, and there was an Aston Villa scout watching. So afterwards, he took down all my information, and a week or so later, I got invited to play on the Aston Villa youth team up at Mansfield Town. And fortunately, again, I scored a goal, and... Uh, a week later, I got a letter inviting me for a six-week tryout down at Aston Villa. And that's how it got started. That's amazing. I'm picturing in my mind something like, um, and people from around here, uh, you know, in the last 20 years might picture a Delta Park where there are just adult league games going or men's league games or just, you know, something like that. That's that's where somebody just saw you doing your thing and you happened to score the hat trick. Yeah, uh, in, in England, there's parks where they've got anywhere from 10 to sometimes 25 fields. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's being there at the right time at the right place. That's some, if, you have, if you have 10 fields with 22 players on a field, that's 220 players. If you have more than that, <laughs> it, it keeps growing. I mean, the chances of that one person seeing that one thing, like you said, are pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it was it was good, obviously for me. I'm glad he was at that game, and as I said, that's how it all all got started. So I went down to the villa on uh, on this six week uh, so called tryout, and uh, things went very well during that that tryout for me. So that's why they uh, and again, as you said, I was I was too young to be an apprentice player and I was too, uh, sorry too old to be an apprentice player and and, uh, and too young to sign a professional contract so that they signed me as an amateur so I couldn't go anywhere else for six months <laughs> but you could play for the England amateur side which is something that stopped existing not long after but up to that point was uh, yeah I, yeah it, it was it, it came as a as a shock to me uh, and I was supposed to go and play in a, a, a trial game with the England team uh, against Queen's Park Rangers. But at the time, the Villa youth team, we were doing extremely well in the FA Youth Cup. And uh, we were playing a game on that particular day. So I didn't go for the tryout, but they still picked me for the upcoming games, which is, again, very nice. Yeah. So I want to talk about that that FA Cup um at 18, you won the FA Youth Cup with Villa, tearing through the later stages by scoring key goals every time I looked at a 
newspaper clipping leading up to that final. I saw your name as scoring a goal. Um, since then, this is an interesting bit. One other future Timber, current um, interim, I guess, assistant coach Liam Ridgewell, won the FA Youth Cup with Villa. So that's two of you now, um, 50 years apart pretty much, although he won his, you know, not 50 years from you. The Ridgewells was against Everton and a young Wayne Rooney. Yours was against Liverpool. Uh, I'm curious if you played against anyone that would go on to be notable from that Liverpool side, um, but I'm most interested in knowing what a, what a cup run like that is like. I mean, it has to be a different buzz than a than a regular season sort of successful run. Yeah, I think when we were that young, it was it was pretty exciting because you, you were playing uh, not on the main fields, you know, like Villa Park or Anfield or Old Trafford. You know, you were playing on practice fields. Uh, but during the FA Cup run that we had, we were playing on, you know, the stadium fields under lights in front of sometimes, well, we we've got 20 odd thousand people to come and watch us play. So it was, you know, it was great. Uh, I think there was a few Liverpool players that made it, um, but I'm not 100% certain. I think the, the biggest game that we played during that run was against local rivals, Birmingham city. Uh, when they had Trevor Francis, who recently just passed away. One of the most famous players, in that time and then uh kenny burns so they were the two major ones that we had played against you know through that cup run that's that's going to be amazing to go from i mean this is a short this is a three-year period of time this is in america we'd probably think in, in high school where a player would go from playing essentially like recreational soccer i know the level's higher but to all of a sudden you're playing in front of twenty thousand people at anfield or villa park uh, making this FA Youth Cup run, and again in like three years' time. Yeah, it was just phenomenal that um, we attracted. We have, still have no idea how why people, you know, came up to to uh, came out to to see a, a a youth game, but the Villa fans are something different, and they'll they'll support any of the teams. Um, and um, yeah, it was rainy days. Rainy nights, cold, but we end up with, as I say, between 15 and, and 22,000 people to come out and watch us. So, you know, that, that was really, really exciting for, for all of us, all the young kids, you know. Uh, I think we were, I think in England it's a little different because I suppose we were used to crowds because when we were kids, we used to go to these matches. You know, oh, yeah. I'd go watch Not Nottingham Forest or, or, or Derby County and, you know, there'd be thirty, forty thousand people. So you're kind of used to the, you know, to the soccer crowd, or I'm going to say football crowd. Yeah. So, so the one rule on this, uh, not the one rule, but one rule on on these podcasts is you could call it soccer or football, or I think both. Okay. To go with whatever is best for you. Um, All right. Kind of speaking of inclusion, that's something interesting. Is I'm curious. So you went to these these matches as a kid, and a lot of people do. Is, do you think cost is prohibitive for younger kids now in English football or even major league soccer? Because, you know, a lot of people that I talked to, that's how they started. They went to their local teams with usually their dad, but um, and they were in that environment from, you know, as soon as they could get in. Yeah, I, obviously everything in this world has gone up in price, but I, I think that tickets for sporting events are, are, are crazy. I know there's some kids, uh, 
kids' prices that a lot of the teams now do in England. Um, but, you know, you look at it, and they're paying a heck of a lot more money now to go watch a game. And so there's times in England where you think the average person just cannot go because of, of the cost, um, you know, of the cost of, the, of these tickets. And there's also a lot of people who just buy season tickets or buy tickets just for the sake of going. You know, the one-time fan that comes from Japan or China or wherever it might be and takes those tickets away from the local people, uh, let's just say in Manchester, which is a perfect example to it. You know, the cost of going to watch Manchester United House must be ridiculous. Right. I'd rather watch Villa right now. <laughs> uh, so one more question before I, I transition to the Timbers, and this is another one that's not on anything I sent you before, but I'm just curious if you can. I mean, I'm sure you've got to remember something about the What is it like to score an FA Cup goal in one of those really famous grounds? You scored quite a few, but... but yeah, uh, to be honest, I've always loved scoring goals. And um, scoring there in front of, again, 20-odd thousand people is something that you, you dream about, no matter what level you were, you were playing at. Um, but my whole thing in, when I was a real kid, of 10 years old or something, I would one thing I wanted to do was score a goal. Uh, and if I didn't score a goal in a game, I thought I'd played badly. Um, right. And that's just how I look at, at goal scorers. You know. Yeah. I'm going to get back to that then in a bit, because I've got something later about scoring goals, but I do want to talk about your time over in the Timbers. You came in the 75 season. How did you end up here? And what was it like adjusting to America or to Portland, to the North American soccer league? Well, I I played three years at, at the Villa and I'd gone out on loan and the Villa, or the manager at the Villa at the time wanted to sell me uh, and, and I didn't want to go play in the the other division. So at the end of my contract, uh, I was given a release and fortunately, uh, Vic Crow, who had signed me as a professional, found out that I was a free agent and called me up and said, Hey, Tony, you want to uh, come play in uh, Portland uh, for the Portland Timbers in, in North America and play in the NESL? And I said, sure. <laughs> it was, it was an e it was a very, very easy answer. Uh, but at the time in you know, those days, you could go play in Australia. Actually, you could go play in Hong Kong. And then of course you could come over and play in America. So, Naturally, knowing Vic and knowing, you know, what he likes in teams and players, I, you know, made the decision to come to Portland. Best thing I did in my life, I think. Yeah. So this is also an interesting thing as you came over without a contract, but a lot of people who came over the same time you did in that 75 season were still, they were technically on loan with the Timbers and that eventually created an issue with contracts in England and contracts here, right? But not you, of course. No, I, I was fine along, I think, with, with Mick and 
Ray and, and a few of the others. But yeah, I think there was a few issues with certain players, you know, because as you said, they were out on loan and the clubs back in England wanted them back. And, uh, you know, Vic had to fly back to England and, you know, barter with these clubs to, you know, keep the players like Willie Anderson and Peter Wiss and Barry Powell. And fortunately he did it because our team would have been, well, we probably wouldn't have had a team. Right. And you would definitely wouldn't have gone to soccer ball that first year if people had to, if they got recalled. And yeah, went. I don't. Yeah, I don't think we would have. That's amazing. So that's that's a good segue into this. That first, excuse me, that first season is very special for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that's that's one is the the team made it. You know, there were championships in the NASL, but this is the first time they started calling it soccer ball. Um, I don't want to make that designation for anyone listening, but. Can you make comparisons between that FA Cup run and that soccer bowl run in 75? Um, I, well, I think, first of all, I mean, they were both exciting. Uh, but I think as you, you know, in the NESL, when we were playing, you know, it was the real thing. It, it, back in England, we were kids. And you know, yes, it was exciting. Uh, but here it was you know, truly, truly professional. And to make that final, uh, we all say that that was probably the highlight of the port of our Portland Timbers career, naturally. And your first Timbers goal, I mentioned this in the intro, it came at, uh, at Vancouver. So that was the fourth match of the season. The same match Willie Anderson debuted. Uh, you scored a 15-minute head excuse me, 15th minute header. Do you remember anything about that goal? Not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, I really don't. I do know that, you know, when we played Vancouver, I, we can look back into the records, but I always used to like playing against them because I always used to score against them. So that was my first goal there. But <laughs> I, I really, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I'm sorry to say. That's all right. So, so then I've, I, I'm going to ask about a goal I think you do remember because it's on it's on video and it's pretty popular. But it's the goal, and uh, I've had Willie Anderson on here, and I asked him, uh, and you and I have talked about this before. But I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through that that match and leading up to, um, you know, you getting on the field against Seattle and, and what sort of happened when you went in, your instructions from Vic Crow, um, and then um, just kind of walk through that goal and. and the aftermath of it yeah i think towards the end of the season i i started to get a, a, a thigh injury and it seemed to get worse and worse and um you know i didn't i didn't start in that game which is disappointing um but again you know as you know we had about thirty-five thousand people there and it was it was you know very a very exciting and I'm just sitting there on the bench and Seattle score and, you know, time's running out and Vic asked me to get up and see what I can do. And then Barry Powell scores the equalizer and he goes, oh, Tony, just sit down here for a while. So I sit down and then we could see things happening. And then he goes, okay, Tony, let's give it a try. And uh, I sit in there and said, okay, and I want to play naturally. And, um, I said, well, what, what shall we do? And he just says, uh, 
just go run about and score a goal. Perfect. And, oh, I go, okay. <laughs> so as, as we all know, it went into overtime, sudden death overtime in those days, the old golden goal. And um, Willie crosses the ball. And the next thing I knew, it was in the back of the net. I didn't even know where it was going, to be honest. Uh, and I heard the crowd roar and that was it. Because uh, I usually, it's like players, they either prefer their left foot or their right foot. And center forwards like balls coming in either from the right wing, which I preferred, but Willie was on the left wing. And so I mean, it just I just headed it perfectly. Uh, and that was it. I mean, there was, there was uh, the goal. Uh, which I take a lot of pride in, actually, because uh, old Timber Jim did a, a survey a while back of, you know, what's the most important thing you remember uh, of, of the Portland Timbers over all these years. And it got voted, my goal got voted the number one of of all time. So, yeah, it is the goal. Everybody keeps reminding yeah. me about it. In fact, I played golf with somebody down here in Palm Springs, and eventually he realized who I was. And he goes, oh, you're the guy that scored that unbelievable goal. <laughs> okay. Let, well, I'll tell is, you something. I, did, I, I didn't have to buy a beer for a long, long time. <laughs> That's motivation enough. Uh, that, what's cool about the couple of things is, you know, I've, when I've been doing these interviews, Willie Anderson said sort of the same thing. He preferred to cross balls in from the right. And so just because it was a broken play off a corner kick where he and uh, I think it was, was it Barry Powell that they both ended up on the left? Um, or was yeah, it, Jim, actually Jimmy right? Kelly. I think Jimmy it was Kelly, Jimmy. thank you. Right. Yeah. And so just because of the corner, they both ended up, Jimmy was on the left originally, but Willie was there for the corner. And so he's playing a ball from his not preferred side and you're finishing it from your not preferred side, which, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, sometimes things don't have to be perfect, but I think it's, really important to talk about that goal and not to trivialize it, but to, to rather say, if we're looking at building culture in Portland and, you know, what it means to be a Portland timber, even a Portland thorn, as opposed to some of the English sides, it's connection over generations to these moments that, that link us together. And so a generational moment like that is essential to build culture, I think, um, because that's something that can still be shared and they can even still see the video and say like, this is where we came from. This is a big moment. And, kids that weren't even born yet, you know, can access that. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think that what football soccer franchises need to do is that they, they really need to look back into their history. Uh, they do it extremely well in England. I'm not sure if they do it extremely well here in the United States. Um, but those types of things it gets the crowd going, it, it, it brings in support, it, it gets name recognition, you know, things like that. Right. No, I, I, think, uh, I think there's a lot to learn from uh, how football and basketball are treated in this country in that specific area, uh, even baseball, uh, as far as, you know. Well, I think, I think in, those, in those sports, and I've got a feeling it's the same in, in soccer now, is that the players that they don't get out into the community you know you see you see some athletes doing it and they do it extremely well 
Um, I think there's a lot of athletes that do it and don't want to let people know that they're doing it. They don't need their fame or fortune for doing things like that. But I think there's a, a lot of them that just don't do that anymore. Uh, whereas, you know, in 1975 and 76, we did so many personal appearances. We did so many things that the fans loved. And I remember one game in Portland where we were, all, we, were, we were given a bunch of, of roses and all 17 of us took these roses up into the stands and, and gave a rose to, you know, a little girl or, or a woman or, uh, and things like that. And the crowd loved that. So this uh, is interesting. Kicked, oh, no, we kicked ball. We signed balls um, and kicked them into the stands. You know, uh, you know, before most games. In fact, I've got one of them. Believe it or not, I, somebody gave me one a few years back that they caught. Uh, so yeah, it's things like that 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 uh, you don't see nowadays. I was uh, when I interviewed Timber Jim. He talked about his first Timbers game. And uh, they were there to watch Pele. And it happened to be, you know, he's there with his family. They weren't soccer people, but it was a thing. And the players were doing that. They were handing roses to people. And someone gave one. I think it was uh, Jimmy Kelly gave it to his uh, his sister. Uh-huh. It just so, just so happened to be a connection. He thought, well, this is really cool. And so, let, you know, I, I just think of that many times over. And you're exactly right with that connection. Which gets me to something yeah. that this, this is a soccer or non-soccer question, but what do people miss about that 75 season? Um, the players, you mean? I, uh, it's that it was, let's just say, five, month, five months of summer of, of fun. Even though it's serious, we had a lot of fun. We were, we were a group, you know. We weren't a bunch of individuals, really. And um, I... I it was just again it was just one of those things and again we got out into the you know into the community and we made a lot of lifelong friends that that summer uh it was different let's put it like that yeah so i have a piece of trivia i want to go into from the 77 season and i mentioned this earlier Mm -hmm. and i i don't expect anyone to remember this but I don't even expect you to, but the L.A. Aztecs, uh, Elton John was partial owner of the team at the time, which is bizarre in itself. But on April 24th of 1977, the Timbers and Aztecs drew 0-0 at L.A. Coliseum. So after the 15-minute sudden death period went by and there were no goals, it went to the new NASL rule at the time, the 35-yard shootout. You scored the only one for Portland, which means you were the first Portland Timber to score a 35-yard shootout. Uh, goal. Well, and I don't know if you remember that match or not, but do you remember how you were introduced to the shootouts and, and what you thought would be your best style? Well, I'm glad you've informed me of that because uh, I didn't remember that. <laughs> yeah. but, so I, obviously I don't remember the game. Uh, I do remember that, you know, this rule came in instead of the usual 12 yard penalty kick. So of course in America, you've got to do something different. And uh, they'd come up with this, this rule to decide, the games 
And so uh, we would practice them, uh, you know, quite a quite a bit actually. And then um, I said, I don't mind. I'm, I'll take one. And there, there it was. I mean, I scored the goal. <laughs> I think we got B anyway. I think we we lost, but uh, yeah, they scored two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was uh, it. Was something different again? Yeah. And so, speaking—I mean, not something different, but something from that 1977 season. It was a tough year for the franchise because the team didn't do well on the field. Uh, there was a coaching change, uh, as well as a lot of player turnover. And that was—you were part of the exodus that season, as were a lot of people. Um, that sort of 1977 marked sort of an end point from the beginning. It's like the end of the first iteration of the Timbers. Um, but you stayed in Portland. So I, I kind of want to ask, what's it like going through a season where something you helped build to great heights just a few years prior was experiencing a significant transition? Um, as well, the league was starting to lose franchises, so you were definitely seeing it not just in Portland but beyond. So I'm just wondering uh, you know, if you could kind of put into words what that season might have been like uh, you know, as that transition was happening. Yeah, I you know being here for, for, you know for two years and going into that that seventy seven season we were we were looking forward to having a a good year but somehow some things didn't gel we had too many players coming in some of the regular players that we had over the last seasons you know didn't come back I think that there were certain new players. And even the coach that took over, there was some, you know, it was, it kind of felt like it was us against them. The 77 players against the, you know, the 75 players. And uh, the whole, the whole team, you know, it just, it just did not gel that year. And, you know, if you read all the newspapers, it, the season didn't end very well, especially in the press and, um, it was a it, it was a sad ending for me, and obviously probably you know for players like Ray Martin and and Hank Leotard and a couple of the other guys there too. It's a it's a season I don't like looking back on, uh, even though I think I was a top goal scorer. I can't remember, uh, but it wasn't a happy happy summer that one. Yeah, well, something good came out of it, and this is. Um... I think a few cool things, but something really good came out of it. Uh, I'll talk about your work with Vest Bill in a moment, but here's the thing that happened at the end of 1977. You were the player coach and then coach for the Woodburn Turks. <laughs> I don't know where you get all this information from. But it's true, right? And yeah. Um... And so you couldn't, I mean, you you played preseason matches and then you ended up when the league started, but what, what league was that? Um, and I was it was that just started the, your coaching. It was just a local men's league. And, um, they, I, I got to know a friend who owned a, a, a grocery store chain and he was German and I wasn't doing anything. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I, you know, started my, my own soccer camps and, and a couple of other things. And, I uh, wasn't coaching youth kids at that time. So he asked me if uh, 
if I would come down and coach his team in Woodburn. <laughs> I go, okay, sounds interesting. Get a little bit of money out of it too and free groceries. And uh, I went down there and it was, wow, this is something different. This is, uh, this is something I really I want to do to help these guys. I mean, they were all from different countries. Uh, one of our best players was from Mexico. Uh, there was a couple from uh, Germany. Uh, there was one guy that was French. And, and then, of course, a lot of the other ones were, were Russian. And it, it's a di- it was a different culture, and I loved it. Uh, and somehow I got these Russian guys to calm down and play. And they, they went, you know, we went on a winning streaks. And eventually I started to play with them. I could play with them in, in tournaments, but I couldn't play with them in the league because I'd been a professional player and the Oregon organization didn't, didn't let professional, ex-professionals until they got an amateur status back. So I just played with them in tournaments and then coached them. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. That's what I found that. I, I, it was great. And a lot of the teams had... Um, ethnic-focused nicknames uh, at the time, and I'm assuming that, that that sort of generated from neighborhoods, and it came through. It's not that's not unique to Portland or Oregon or you know this area. That seems to be in a lot of places, um, but it doesn't sound like there were a lot of people from Turkey on the team. No, uh, I think it was just down in Woodburn. Just you know, there was a, there were a lot of farmers down there, fruit growers, et cetera, et cetera, and you know they've this guy formed this this team got them together and he wanted a coach so every wednesday or thursday night i would drive down i5 to woodburn and coach with them and and then on the sundays we would we would play that's great so as a as a player with the timbers your last match was in 1977 uh but you did play one more nasl game nearly 2 years later in 1979, you played for the Minnesota Kicks, and you got an assist in a 2-0 win. But the interesting thing about that is it was at Civic Stadium, and it was against the Portland Timbers. Yes. <laughs> this is, do you want to add well, anything to, to that? Or? Um, well, when you, you look back at that, it was, you know, the, the players went out on strike, and... Um, uh, I was never a, a union guy anyway, what, but it, I, was, I wasn't even thinking about it. And uh, Ray Martin uh, called me up and he said, hey, my ex-manager, Freddie Goodwin's in town and, and he's looking for players uh, you know, from, from Minnesota. He goes, do you want to play? And I can't remember. I think we got 200 or $500 for the game. <laughs> Not that I was playing for the money. Uh, but I think I, I was I was also uh, upset with the Portland Timbers because of the way uh, things went in in 1977 at the end of that season, and so I thought, well, are the Timbers going to call us to play, or then I get this this call from from Ray, and I decided to play, you know, for, for Minnesota. Uh, which that could have been another turning point because you had a very good player called Ace, and I can't pronounce his last name, but that was his right. nickname. He was very, uh, 
And uh, he was the yeah. one that scored, and I'm sitting in the locker room with him, and he's trying to convince me to come play in Minnesota. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. That would have changed my life totally. What's well, it's kind of uh, interesting to me, and I'll give a little background for people who may not know specifically what we're talking about. But in 1979, there was like a four-day strike, a player strike, because some of the players were trying to form a union, and this was NASL-wide. Uh, and the, the big reason, I think, is because players could just be your contract could just be voided at any time for any reason. And there was, you know, people were looking for a little bit more of a, you know, stability, I think. Um, but then when this happened, it happened so quick and teams still played their games um, and Minnesota happened to be in town at that exact time. Yeah, I, I, I think the majority of the Timbers did go out on strike. Right. Um, and so they called in a lot of uh, local players and they brought players in to play for them. And that pro- probably happened all, all over, all over the country. I don't know how successful or unsuccessful it was in, you know, in other cities. Um, but um, yeah, that was an interesting, but I say it only lasted what four or five days and then everybody went back to work. Right. Right. It was like one strange game where the rosters are expanded by players who probably never played again. Uh, but I have a kind of three follow-ups to that as I'll get to my next question. One is again, for context, you're not the only person that experienced the 77 season and how a transition was taking place in a positive way. Um, I mean, in a, you know, in a negative way, um, there was a, there were a lot of um, choices made in the 77 season. I think that, contributed to that for a lot of people and it was it was a hard year um, I also I'm curious when was the last time you'd played because you're probably playing maybe with the Turks or another team between 77 and that one match in 79 and then the next thing to sort of move that on is you didn't stop playing after that because you then went on to a three-year season I'm sorry three-season uh, career of indoor soccer with the Buffalo Stallions did that moment kind of get you going, even though it wasn't with Minnesota as Ace wanted you to do? It, it got to the stage in my mind that I thought I was going to retire and I was saying my soccer camps were doing extremely well. I got a job at a local sporting goods store and running that and coaching here and there. I, you know, I even coached in Saudi Arabia for a while. Uh, but then I came back and through one of my soccer camps, a f- friend of mine said, Tony, you're too young to retire. You know, this, this, this uh, indoor league is starting to take off like crazy, just like the NASL did. And he said, you should go play indoor. So he turned, turned into an agent for me and did this, this, resume so to speak and sent sent it off to all these uh, all the clubs that were uh, you know joining the league and buffalo were the first ones to get back to me and so here it is you know portland oregon to uh, buffalo new york uh, not one of the best cities in the country that's for sure especially in winter but there's a chance for me to get back and play again and 
I had no idea what the indoor league was going to be like. Uh, but when I got there, like the coach, like the assistant coach, you know, there was uh, uh, Jimmy May was there, the goalkeeper, and then Dave Sarakin, who is now a really good friend of mine, I'm sure you know, he used to coach the U.S. national team. And uh, he was playing, and things gelled there. And they asked me to, to sign a, you know, a, a one-season contract. And it turned out to be fun. It was like a second Portland Timbers, believe it or not. We we started with, let's just say, 3,000 people watching the first match. Uh, and we ended up with a full house at times of 20-odd thousand people. And we were out selling the Buffalo Sabres um, hockey team. So, it, yeah, it was, it was deja vu time, I suppose. That's it. And so what did you think of the indoor game? <laughs> uh, you could classify it as a circus. Uh, it, uh -huh. it, it was a cross between uh, soccer and hockey. Uh, it was, it was demanding. Um, it was physical. Uh, the fans were crazy. Uh, there was always, always something happening in every stadium or arena that you went to play in, a lot of publicity and uh, again, a lot of excitement. And, and so I got into it. I really, really enjoyed it, but it was very, very physical. Uh, but we did well and, uh, and I played another couple of years there. Something else you did there, um, and we've talked about this before, but uh, you mentioned that at the time you were also getting guys to wear Nikes. And I found a, a team photo where if I look in the very back row, you're standing in the back, but I can see between it, you're in fact, I think one of the only people wearing them at the time. Uh, I guess I want to ask how that, I mean, I think we all know how that came about, but I'd like to ask how that, how that came about that you were spreading well, the word. With yeah. Nikes as well. well, Mick Hoban had been my friend for a long, long time. He was Aston Villa and, uh, you know, obviously he played here in Portland in 75 and we were roommates together and we used to do all the appearances together. And uh, when we signed year round contracts in Portland, we were the ones that went out into the community. So I'd known, I've been known Mick for years and uh, he, he got a job at, at Nike once he retired uh, running their soccer program and you know, he was out contacting his friends and I, obviously I was one of them and said, would you wear, you know, like to wear Nike shoes? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I would get Nike shoes, get some free apparel. And I think I even got paid like $600 or something to wear them. And um, so that's how I got, got involved with, with Nike. Nice. And so I'm going to transition a little bit out of your playing days, but I've got sort of one more question as I do that. Um, and when I interviewed you previously about playing, I, just for the uh, Cascadia piece that I did on the site, you said this, and you sort of said this a few minutes ago, right at the start of this, quote, to score goals is the best thing. Even when I was a kid in grammar school and with the youth team at Aston Villa, when we won the FA Youth Cup, scoring goals, no matter where you are, whether it's in front of 70,000 people or seven, it's a very thrilling thing. I love that quote, Tony. Um, but also, I got to say that as an opposing coach, when I played, you coached West Villa, um, and I was at 
Portland City United and then FC Portland as sort of the rivalry was, you scared the crap out of me. Um, and even later when we coached against each other, when I was at Lincoln and you were at Wilson, I wasn't sure how to take it. Uh, and, I, and I was a little intimidated. But then I hear you talking about scoring goals, about playing soccer. I've seen the 75 video newspapers uh, after you scored goals. I've seen in many different instances, you with the fans at Civic Stadium as a player. Uh, I even saw an indoor match with Buffalo. And what I see in those moments is is happiness. I see pure joy. And you just look so happy to be playing soccer. Um, what do you miss most about those moments? Uh, missing the most, it, it, it's really, it's, it's the adrenaline that goes through you when you're playing. Uh, when you step out onto that field, uh, and again, you've got thousands of people watching you, and you, you get involved with all the excitement of it. And being part of the excitement it, it, was, was scoring goals. And I think when you finish playing, well, I know when you, you finish playing, that's what you miss the most. I think you miss the adrenaline rush and the, you know, the excitement of it. In fact, I, I, I watched uh, David Beckham's um, documentary the other night, and he said exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, when his, when his last game, when he played his last game, he realized, even though he's had a very exciting life since then, but he was going to miss, you know, those 90 minutes. And I think that's, you know, that's what I miss. You always think that you're going to be playing forever. Uh, you know, when you're 18, oh, I could be doing this. I'm, I'm never going to stop playing. Uh, but obviously, sooner or later, you have to. And then it hits you. You know, I'm not going to play again. And I have a feeling, and I talked to a few old teammates about this. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of players who, you know, go through some form of depression after it. And yeah. I think no matter how many years or appearances you made, that affects you. And then it would also affect the young kids, uh, you know, who are apprentices and they've gone two years, let's say, at, at Aston Villa or Manchester United or whatever, and they get a, you know, a call, come into the manager's office and, you know, they sit there and he goes, well, son, you're not good enough. You know, that's how you, they used to say, you're not going to make it. We're going to have to let you go. And I could, you can feel how that kid would walk out of that office and, you know, what his thoughts were and, and what kind of, even though depression wasn't talked about back then, but, uh, you know, how depressed he was because he, was, he really wanted to play soccer. And now he doesn't have a chance. And miss some formative years for other things. Yeah, as well. Um, and so, so we you know we talked about this where you played and then you didn't play, and then you, in '79 you played and then you played three more indoor seasons. Um, what did you do? So the Buffalo Stallions you last played for in 1982. Between that and when you started the soccer club West Villa, uh, which I'll talk about next or ask you about next. Excuse me. What did you do? I went to work for Nike. <laughs> okay, Mick. Yeah, Mick uh, called me up and said, hey, we're starting to, to form a soccer department at, at Nike. Would you be interested in, uh, you know, coming to work for us? And at that time, 
I had had a knee injury. I hadn't played for for quite a while, and I had had a couple of operations. And a good friend of mine was was coaching in, in another uh, franchise. I think it was in New Jersey, and we were really good friends. And he said, "Hey, Tony, just you know, come out and play with us. You know, play for a, a season. Um, money was good." But then I realized I can't play anymore. It was actually a career-ending injury. Uh, they told me that I, I couldn't play. So I made a sensible choice and went and got a real job, uh, you know, working with Nike and helped start their, their soccer program. And so I moved to Dallas for a while. Then I moved to St. Louis. Then Mick went over to Europe to take care of Europe. And they got me to go back to Portland and there I was back in Portland again, which I knew that if I you know, started working for Nike, there was a chance that I would be able to get back to Portland. And so I moved back, um, you know, worked at the Nike headquarters there, uh, running their soccer program and, uh, for, for a while. And then moved on to a few other things at Nike. Uh, and then uh, started my own, my own business. And that was, uh, is that before Puma? Yes. Was that? I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I left Nike uh, and started my own sales agency with, believe it or not, tennis rackets, uh, selling tennis rackets and racquetball rackets, and then moved on to selling uh, Deodora. And I worked for okay. those guys for about seven years. And that's what I really wanted to do after a while. Uh, not really a corporate guy and just like to get out there on my own. I've got to admit it was tough at the beginning, but um, it worked out to be quite successful. And that, and so, that gave me a, yeah, that gave me a lot of freedom to, to uh, think about coaching kids. Um, that's yeah. what I did. And this is exactly what I want to talk about next is West Villa. And uh, I'll say this for the record, West Villa always had our number. I think I finished second in the state every year of my age group uh, to West Villa. But I have a lot of good friends who came through that club, and I know it was um, uh, I know it was it was different, right? Uh, it reached it, at times it reached a different group of people who may not have been served or had opportunities or, or other chances with other clubs. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it saves some lives. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, Tony, how did West Villa start? What was it about? And what does that club still mean to you? It means a lot to me because, you know, I was very proud of what these, you know, what the kids did and what that whole, you know, club did. Uh, probably other people who played against West Villa and against me probably won't agree with me, but, um, you know, we... We put together a really good program, not realizing, you know, how big this would get. Uh, but it started by one guy in Beaverton coming over to me and said, hey, you know, soccer's big here. My son wants to play along with some of his friends, but uh, some of these clubs won't take them because either their parents don't have the money or that the kids have got a bad reputation. Um, so we need to, you know, get these, these kids to play. And 
So I said, yeah, let's let's do it, which eventually um, we we did, and we eventually called it West Villa, one, because we, all the kids were from the west side of Portland, and of course, with the, the Villa connection. And so it, yeah, it formed, and it went from one team to numerous, and we, again, we started to win. Not that that was the most important thing about this club. It wasn't really about winning, um, but he, when we say that, we did. A lot. Uh, a lot. Right, yeah. And it, it was it's funny because I had a reuni- reunion with with uh, a number of the teams from that era. And, you know, the whole deal was that everybody who played for this club or these teams, they had to, you know, give 100% on the field, don't get into trouble, and do your very best in school. So I would actually talk to some even their school teachers at time and see what they would they were doing. But the other criteria was that everybody had to partake in fundraising. The kids, the parents, uh, other parts of their family, you know, all had to help. And the majority of these, these players that we brought on, yes, some of them had bad reputations, but with my strict disciplinarian way uh, of coaching, um, we was able to handle that. And so these kids hardly had to pay a dime to play. And that is now a very important factor in youth soccer nowadays, is that it's very, very expensive for kids to play. Right. And I've, I have, a, a, well, we know this for a fact. There's a lot of kids out there who are tremendous players, but they, they can't get onto these good teams because it's far too expensive, you know, for them to play year round. And so we, we formed this club. And I, again, I'm going to repeat this. I was very proud of, 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 of what we, you know, we accomplished. And it wasn't just me. It was, it was a lot of key parents and, and um, a lot of my coaches at the time. Um, but, you know, we won, we won state championships. We never won regionals or went, went to nationals. But that really, again, wasn't the big part, part about it. And I was telling, telling the kids at the, when we had, well, they're not kids now, but when I had the reunion, you know, is that um, one of the most great lines, I suppose, I heard in my, in my um, soccer career, I was sitting at, um, at Jake's Grill uh, having a drink and in walks, one of one of my ex players, and um, we got talking, and then you realize what we did it for. And he goes, um, and I'll, I'll I'll read this because I remember writing this down. He goes, Coach, we made out. We did not enjoy your type discipline, but deep down inside, we loved it, and it kept me and a number of other players out of jail. So for that, you know, we thank you. So. That was well worth it. Yeah, that and thanks for sharing that because I, as, from the other side, as a player, 
I loved and hated playing against West Villa because I knew it was a fight. I knew we were in for it from every second, and it, it brought the best out of me, and I wasn't even in the club because it had to. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to compete. Uh, but also being friends with a lot of the players who, who came through it, it's just amazing what the game as a conduit for for life can be. And, and you know, love isn't always easy and, and just being permissive, but sometimes it's it's setting specific boundaries and, you know, holding people accountable and through the game and through love, uh, you know, these people have an opportunity, everybody has an opportunity to succeed and be better. And I'm just really thankful for that you shared that with, uh, with the rest of you know, whoever's listening. Yeah. The, you know, the kids, you know, I'm a fi- I was a fiery guy. I would get in trouble with referees and the, and the Oregon Youth Soccer Association and <laughs> things, things like that, you know, probably more referees and uh, I probably got sent off more times than any other coach in the state of Oregon. But, uh, you know, we would do crazy things or I would do it. I always remember playing in a, in a final on Tarleton Hills Rec Center. And, you know, our, our colors were, were red and white because we couldn't get claret and blue, you know, so we, we picked red and, red and white. And everybody expects it, but I, unbeknownst to anybody, um, about 15 minutes before the final, I got all the kids behind a couple of trees and go, here, guys, here's, here's your new uniforms for this, uh, for this final. And they're looking at me, so I get out, out of my bag. And we wore all black. I'd got a, a, a soccer company called Admiral that made black uniforms. And so we changed into black shirt, black shorts, and, and, and black socks. And we all we walk out there, and you could see everybody going, what the heck is this? Um, so it's just little things like that that I used to love to do. It, uh, you know, got opposition parents against us but that was all part of it yeah i remember that that was a that was a trend-setting moment because nobody nobody wore black and then no there was there was one there was yeah yeah there was one team down in california uh who who was very successful and i got to know know the, the guy that ran it and they used to wear all black and uh he was the one that got me the black uniform that's crazy so speaking of rivalries uh when i interviewed you for the piece on the cascadia rivalries you mentioned san jose was actually the most interesting at the time and mick hoban chris dangerfield willie edison brian gant uh all corroborate that even when they were brian gant when he was with um vancouver says the same thing you were with mick hoban when he got punched right by a fan down there yeah, but he was not the only one that got punched. Uh, right. Peter, some fan ran onto the field uh, and punched Peter. We later found out he was the brother of one of the players that were playing on the San Jose Earthquakes. And, and San Jose was not an easy place to play. It was a small stadium, but it was on grass. They had the guy called Crazy George that would have a, a tiger uh, on a chain. Uh, he would get the crowd going. And uh, it was it was quite a rivalry, and I always remember, you know, we're playing and the crowd's going crazy, and and there was a couple of players, like I think there was two or three players got ejected, and we're losing, and I score a goal and we tie it up. So here I am, 
uh, with Barry Powell running down the sidelines, blowing kisses to the crowd, and it, they go absolutely <laughs> ballistic, you know. Uh, and we, we got beat that game, one of the few games we did lose. But you, to the locker room, you've got to go up this ramp, which is concrete. But we were wearing cleats. We were in six studs because of the grass. And this guy pops out of the crowd and just decks Mick. And we look at it. And so here we are trying to chase the guy in con- on concrete. We're in the stud. So you're taking three steps forward and two steps back, you know. And we couldn't catch him. Uh, so, yeah, he got away with it. But that was that was a that was a crazy game. It was a crazy night. Um, but the rivalry rival was there. But the majority of us stayed friends. We were all friends with each other in a way. And as you know, the Timbers ended. We all started doing reunions, and uh, we invited a lot of the San Jose Earthquakes to play in one in Portland that Willie and I put on, and they invited us down to San Jose to play in, in one of their reunions, which Georgie Best played in. And um, so, yeah, we would, we would do things like that. Uh, so it was a friendly rivalry off the field, but a horrible one on the field. Right. Uh, I don't know if you see, I have a video of that, that Tiger pregame stuff off the set. <laughs> it's great. Well, uh, yeah, well, the Tiger, it, it was obviously – it was doped up. It was it, it was on a chain. But I always remember Brian Godfrey that year. He was coming out in the second half, and he kicks the ball towards the tiger, and the tiger just puts its huge paw on it, and then chomps the ball, <laughs> and, and just blows the ball up. <laughs> we go, okay, we're not going anywhere there. You know, we're, we're staying on this side of the field right now till the ref blows his whistle. <laughs> so. Um... I want to go back to that 75 team that we're here now. And it's, it's a group that really bonded fast with, with the city and something I see whenever I'm researching uh, and even talking to people, but in a lot of the photographs, there are fans and players together on the field, around the field, around the stadium. There was a real personal connection you guys made with the fans. Uh, and it was such an organic and pure love and respect. How does that happen? Does it start with the coach? Like, is that a Vic Crow thing? Is it an ownership thing? Uh, you know, how did that sort of, how does that, come about because it built pretty big and pretty fast that 75 year yeah well we were all well we loved america that's all we loved portland and uh after the first game the rain stopped and it was beautiful weather and we were able to get out in, into the community but the, the owners had asked us to do you know all of these things and uh what they did after many of the games they would have a big huge after match reception at the Hilton Hotel or the Benson, and um, there would be thousands of people at, at, at these receptions, and we would all go. And I think that the people in Portland they'd never seen anything like this. The Trailblazers didn't didn't do that, and so here are these people in Portland being being able to have a you know a, a drink with with the, the players that they had just seen play. And that created not only a great atmosphere of future games, but it was, hey, these soccer players, they're not bad bad guys. In fact, they're a lot of fun, you know? Uh, And the 
the girls would love it because, you know, the English accents and, and long hair and we're running around in short shorts, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it, it, it brought everybody together. And I, you know, I made a lot of friends from, from, uh, from those nights. And so, so even now, I think you could argue there's room to build and connect with the community and, and build culture. I think culture is really important. That's what started this whole thing is, you know, me thinking about how I got to where I was just as a person, how big soccer was, and then going back and seeing, you know, guys like you, Jimmy Conway, John Payne, uh, Clive Charles, Bill Irwin, et cetera. I could just keep going on. Um, and then I realized, like, that's that comes from a place. It comes from a culture. That's something that's built. Now we've got a major league soccer team. We're nearing our 50th year, uh, which I'll ask you about in a second. But um, when I look at major league soccer, there are some pre-existing NASL markets. There are some that aren't. But how can a how can a club, a major league soccer club, build culture and build on culture that pre-exists, whether they were in an NASL market or not? Well, I think that that comes that comes with time. Um, but again, it's it's getting the players out there to prove that they are normal. You know, they're not heroes, they're not gods, they're, no, they're just normal people. But unfortunately, nowadays, uh, we talked about this about ticket prices, you know, it's about the almighty dollar. And unfortunately, well, I suppose all over the world now, you know, that's, that's what counts. Players get paid a lot of money. They don't want to go out and do the stuff that, you know, that, that we did. Um, and the owners are just, just wanting to sell tickets. Uh, and now, you know, the TV rights have come in. Uh, whereas when we were playing, that never even dreamed of that kind of stuff. So I think it's difficult to do. Uh, I, I think that if you had a reception like we used to do in 75 and 76, you couldn't do that now. I mean, the cost of it would be ridiculous because of the security. And when you think about things, uh, you want Steph Curry, you know, talking to thousand or two thousand people inside a ballroom, you know, that, that stuff doesn't happen. I don't know. I don't know how you you, you start this again, but it's, it's a different world. Um, I like I like living in the the old world, so to speak. Well, I want to look back a little bit then because, you know, next year uh, the Whitecaps, Sounders, Earthquakes celebrate their 50th year. And then the next one, 2025, is the Timbers' 50th anniversary. And you were, you know, someone who was here from the first day, scored the most iconic goal, right, That we even today. Uh, and something that I think set us on a trajectory that, that's given us so much. I also know that you've been to Aston Villa and, you know, you've – been included in, in game days with them um, just because you're a former player and it's kind of a once a villain always. Um, so what would you like to see uh, as Portland builds to the 50th anniversary to, to sort of, you know, bring some of this together? What can be done? Well, I think it's important that they do it. In fact, I've had a little conversation with somebody at the, uh, in, in the office already and uh, Timber Jim and I have, have talked about it and he agrees with it. And, you know, we should, the, the club should do something. They've done it once before. Uh, but what this time it should be, they should come in and hopefully a lot of us are still around 
in 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 the 2025, they should just bring those players back to Portland. And it's not, I don't think they should just parade us out in front of a, of a crowd for, for one game. I think there could be a lot of goodwill brought into the, into the Timbers. Uh, you know, we could do golf tournaments. Uh, this is all for charity. Uh, they could pick a number of charities. We could do a banquet. We could do, you know, speeches. You name it. There's a lot this can do, and you know, it's not just a one-night affair. It, 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 you know, it could be a, I won't say a week long, but it could be, you know, it could go over four or five days, and I think they would get a lot of good publicity out of that, and then then they could introduce us to the players now who. Probably the, the the Timbers who are playing now have no idea how this all got started, and you know they would probably get an idea. So I, you know I hope they hope they do something. I, I, I have they've asked me, uh, or one person did. You know we'll sit down and you know next time you're in Portland and and we'll discuss it because we Willie Anderson and I we did a couple of reunions uh, over the years. Uh, and we did it on our own and played at Civic Stadium. And we, you know, we drew 10,000 people or something like that. Um, so I think that a reunion should be very important uh, to the to the club. And the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame put us all, you know, put us all in there a few years ago. And uh, we got recognized. So I think the Timbers should really do something. I really do. Well, Tony, uh, have we missed? I mean, I know we've missed stuff. There's, it's impossible to to do this at the time we have. But have we missed anything you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. No, I mean it covers a lot uh, without a without a doubt. Uh, you know, I'm enjoying my retirement and and I'm spending my time writing my book, <laughs> which is kind of strange. But I thought, what the heck? You know, a lot of people write books, so. This is a book of, uh, of, you know, a player who, you know, finished playing and, and went on to, to, to a, a, a good business career too. And I, I said, uh, I'm going to call it the, the footballer who nearly made it because there are certain <laughs> things, there's certain things in life that uh, happen you know, a 10-second thing that could have changed a whole life completely. Yeah. And I think we all have those. I've had a, had a few, but there's been a couple of major ones um, that, that could have happened, and I would not be here talking to you right now yeah. if a certain thing had happened. You know, so it's, uh, so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying, trying to do. Well, I will say uh, on behalf of not just myself, but a lot of my friends who benefited from what you did do here, uh, especially through the club you started, I'm not terribly upset that things turned out how they did. I'm thankful for them. And I, I say thank you on, on behalf of the people I know who played from West Villa, uh, but also just what you've done for, for Portland since you came here. Uh, Tony, yeah, thanks so well, much. I, yeah, I'm not disappointed either that, that uh, it didn't turn out in England like it I'd hoped it would have done because then, then I would have, uh, you know, not 
enjoyed my life in Portland, Oregon. Well, Tony, um, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. I Thanks for coming on. It. Brings back memories. You ain't got to be two hundred pounds or a giant at seven three to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio. You will see it on TV. That when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the color. Soccer is the game, we're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim, so let's see.